and welcome to New Books and Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Annette Joseph-Gabriel. Today, I have the pleasure to be talking with Jason Herbeck about his new book, Architectural Authenticity, Constructing Literature and Literary Identity in the French Caribbean. Jason is professor of French at Boise State University in Idaho. His research focuses primarily on evolving narrative forms in 20th and 21st century French and French Caribbean literatures, and how these forms relate to expressions and constructions of identity. In addition to many articles and book chapters devoted to the literatures and histories of Haiti, Martinique, and Guadeloupe, he has also published widely on Albert Camus, and is since 2009 president of the North American section of the Société des études Camusiennes. Thank you for joining us, Jason. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest in my book. So I'm so excited to kind of dive into this conversation. Um, I have to confess that for the last couple of days, I've been kind of practicing in the mirror how to say architectural authenticity. <laughs> um, and it's it's really it's a, it's such a fascinating title, and it's really what my what caught my eye um, when I when I first looked at this text. Um, and it's an equally fascinating concept that you develop through this title um, because this this concept kind of has two parts, right? So architectural, which highlights the quality of literary identity as something that's constructed. Um, And so you think of architecture in a more literal sense by analyzing things like gingerbread houses in Haiti um, and and architecture in thinking about how the text is constructed. So architectural is doing all of this work. And then next to it is authenticity, which is a term that I was, I must confess, being a little bit surprised to see, um, you know, because it's a bit of a troubled term in colonial and post-colonial studies. And and you you do a really um, interesting job um, or a really excellent job in, in this interesting way that you tease out how authenticity delineates relationships of the past or to an original that can be reproduced or not reproduced. So your title alone has these two very loaded terms. Um, and we could probably spend an hour just talking about your title. But I, I'd like for listeners to hear, I guess, in your own words, how this title is framing the work that you're doing in this book. Okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, you've done an excellent job explaining the contradiction that I wanted to be inherent in the title itself. In other words, uh, architectural, uh, based on the text uh, from the um, Gérard Jeannette's concept, is really to break it down, the construction of text. In other words, what goes into a given text that we might read on a given day? Um, The generic, lexical, discursive, thematic and structural blueprints of sorts from which a text emerges and is created. And some people might immediately react to that and say, no, I, I mean, texts are quite free in their creation. It's the author's uh, impetus alone that creates the text and allows it to, uh, to become something. But in the context of structuralism, narratology, I really wanted to look at how authors approach the act of writing. And I think in the context of the French Caribbean, this is very, very poignant because it's hard to read, might be an exaggeration, but it's, it is difficult to read a work from the French Caribbean that does not in some way reflect upon itself. There is the act of writing or the act of creation or the questioning of what is one, what one is saying to express oneself in the works themselves. And that's always fascinated me. And I felt that architecture was a, a really good door to open in terms of trying to understand 
why we are constantly coming back in this literature to questions of not just what we are saying, but how we are saying it. So on the one hand, it's it's kind of a structuralist, formalist approach. And on the other, it's authenticity, which was, to, in theory, um, as I try to explain in my book, would be antithetical to any type of architecture. In other words, how can one be original if we're building with blocks of other entities, with former genres, with um, previously hashed out themes, um, different types of discursive uh, narratives that have already been used and, in a sense, imposed in some regards by other other authors. And uh, what I was trying to demonstrate right from the start is that you're absolutely right. Authenticity is a is almost a taboo term in many regards. And some people push back quite strongly on it. And I welcome that that pushback because it really forced me to justify my decision to use the word authenticity. And as I explain in the book, authentic actually has two very different meanings um, in different contexts based on what type of emphasis you put on the past or present. In one regard, authentic refers to an original, something that has pre-existed what is coming afterwards. And so if I want to become authentic based on some preconceived, preexistent identity, then I'm going to try to, I guess, piece together characteristics of what I assume is that uh, that former identity or one that perhaps still exists, but that I want to imitate in some way. It's an imitation or an attempt to imitate. Whereas there's also a different type of authenticity that focuses on truly being original. And its emphasis on the past is only an emphasis with respect to demonstrating how what this identity is in the present differs from what has preceded it. And so this is the authenticity that I'm talking about, because in the context of colonization, um, the imposition of all types of different strictures and the structures of the colonial empire, to pretend that we might actually go back prior to this colonial era and retrieve what existed at the time and therefore become authentic based solely on an imitation of the past is unfeasible. And I think many people have already agreed to that, um, writers, um, theorists, etc. And so what I'm trying to look at in my book is the divide that seems to be inherent between building a text, the architectural properties of it, and how that text itself could be something new and appreciated as such. Mm. I, I find that really interesting because you talk about, you know, on one hand, this this language of construction and architecture that that permeates your work. Um, you know, in, in your response that you just gave, for example, you talk a lot about construction, about blueprint, about building blocks, and then you have this divide with, you know, the impossibility of, I suppose, building this sort of, you know, original preserved, you know, culture identity from a past that, you know, has, has been, has suffered this kind of rupture um, through, through the, the fact of, or the experience of colonialism. And so one of the ways that you engage with architecture is to consider the idea of building materials. And there's a quote from your book that I found so generative because you say how, or you ask rather, how is identity constructed when the very tools and materials historical, linguistic, literary, and otherwise, with which the Caribbean self is to be expressed, 
have, with only scarce exceptions, been fabricated by the former colonizer. And the, one of the reasons I found this text so interesting is because it it is quite closely related to, I think, Audre Lorde's formulation in her, you know, 1979 speech titled The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Um, and so, you know, Lord thinks about not how to construct in the way that you're thinking, but rather how to dismantle or take apart the edifice of racist patriarchy. So in the, the, the books that you look at, what are some of the building materials that your writers use and what do they do with these materials? I guess in short, what I'm asking is, do they try to build a new house with the master's tools and how does that process work? That's an excellent question. That's what I'm trying to get at um, at the heart of my, uh, my exploration of these ideas. And essentially what I'm demonstrating and what I'm trying to illustrate in these works is that it's it's some way inevitable that one must construct the space of construct must happen within certain confines that from which the writer cannot escape in other words if a writer was uh was educated in a certain colonial mindset language um ideals etc they have to begin by working with those tools. There is, there are very seldom other options that they have at their disposal, and a lot of writers from Confiant to Césaire, um, they look at this as initially a very, very frustrated endeavor. Inherently, it's it's almost impossible. But what I try to demonstrate is that it's important not just to understand from where these different building blocks come but just as importantly you have to question them as they become part of your own creative process of expression and so in terms of architecture what i find one of the i guess one of the most telling aspects of this literature is for me when writers in their works either refer to explicitly or implicitly other works of literature and I think in the past, very, very often, literary critics have seen that as almost a crutch or a way of saying, I am not going to say this has already been said, therefore, here's the quote, or I'm referring to this so that implicitly a reader will know in thinking about the work that I have just alluded to, what I'm talking about. And I kind of resist that type of reading because I find it too simple. It's, it's asking readers to go back into certain frameworks or structures and accept them for what they are. And rather, in the works that I examine in my book, what I try to demonstrate is that time again, when, for instance, these types of texts or source texts, as they're called, come up, they are not taken at face value. They are questioned. They are truncated purposefully so that what's missing has to be examined and has to be questioned. And that's where that missing part or what it's supposed to suggest but doesn't in the context of the work that's being written, that's where I feel there is a new type of construction with the very elements that one has at his or her disposal. So in this process of kind of questioning and, and self-reflection and, and reflecting on other texts that writers are engaging with in their works, um, 
why why do you select the writers and these particular texts that you select? And I ask because once I started to read your analysis um, of, you know, like dwelling structures like the home, etc., I started to see how architecture is pertinent throughout all of French Caribbean literature. I just started to see architectural authenticity everywhere. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about like Rue Cazenègre, for example, um, Texaco, uh, Rosalie L'Infemme, right, where Evelyn Trouillot is thinking about different different kinds of dwelling spaces, like the slave quarters, like the master's house, and even the barracoons kind of becomes this almost architectural, architect, architectural <laughs> physical space, um, you know, that functions in multiple ways. And so I, I'm, I don't know whether you're, your experience was that you were spoiled for choice or that, you know, you actually had a limited set of texts that you could look at. But I'm wondering what you found particularly generative about the texts and writers that you select. That's a great question. I'm very happy that uh, in reading my, my book, you began to think of all these other works that could be perhaps looked at in this light. That's uh, uh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was hoping in writing. Cause you're right. Um, there were a lot of other works that uh, friends, colleagues, uh, anonymous readers suggested to me and said, well, you we should look at this too. And the list went on and on. And uh, to begin to answer your question, I decided early on that what I would look at is what I determined microstructures as opposed to macrostructures. And a microstructure in the case of my book is simply an individual house um, that normally housed a person or a family, a single family unit. Um, exactly like with Texaco uh, or um, uh, other works, I could look at entire neighborhoods, entire cities, um, quartiers. Um, and I think that that actually could be a very interesting sequel of sorts to this type of analysis to look at how entire uh, neighborhoods are depicted in the context of a particular moment in time in this in this country's history. Um, but I decided uh, to become somewhat, uh, I guess, non-diverse in, in this, in this uh, regard. I wanted to focus on individual houses. And I think I was trying to think recently about why I decided to focus on houses. And I, there might be two just general explanations in terms of my own arrival at this uh, decision. And uh, a long time ago, I read... Um, uh, Vladimir Nabokov's lectures on literature and lectures that he actually gave on various uh, pieces of literature. And he has this fascinating lecture on uh, Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And what he does is in describing the identity of this individual, obviously is has two different types of identities um, within himself, he decides to analyze in detail where this person lives and he suggests by a very fine blueprint of the description that could be rendered via the text that there are two clear entrances to this person's uh, house, which is actually kind of an apartment because it's on a city block. Um, and that while one is on an open square, it's very, very nicely built up. It's very prestigious, et cetera. It's for the doctor. The other is in a back alley. And it's torn down. It's uh, there are vagrants to hang out outside the door. And what he demonstrates, uh, Nabokov in his lecture, is that the house itself typifies the two sides of this individual, the Jekyll and the Hyde. And so that always stuck with me. And um, I didn't bring this to my reading, 
But I think eventually, and it was in particular with respect to reading uh, Traversée de la Mangrove by Maurice Condé, I found myself wondering why the main character, Francis Sanchez or Sancher, um, decides to write the, the history of his life and that of his family on the veranda of his house. Why not outside or why not in the house? And somehow Condé, for some reason, makes it very clear where he sets up his table and his typewriter. He's on the veranda. And so I started thinking about that in the context of the public reading that Patrick Chamoiseau gave of her, of her um, novel, where he criticizes her use of certain words. He lauds her use of other words, and he really goes through and tries to determine where she is, I guess, writing correctly in a Creole mindset and where she has adapted the words of the colonizer or where she is writing for the colonizer with these footnotes that are not necessary for someone from the area. They know what certain words mean automatically. And I realized that perhaps I could look or explain Patrick Chamoiseau's frustration and Condé's success to her, her response by looking at where Francis Sanchez was writing his his story, and he's not he's not entirely in this house which was built in the colonial colonial area, uh, sorry, colonial era, um, and he's not necessarily outside, entirely free with his uh, his expression. He's somewhere caught in the middle, and so he can't forget this colonial mindset, this structure around him. But at the same time, he is aware that there's more than that. And over the course of the novel, in returning to the house, I read it over and over. And there's actually a lot of information about this house in the novel, which, which can be pieced together from the narratives of different individuals um, on which the, uh, the, the, the novel focalizes. And I guess this is a long answer to your question, but I think that allowed me to think, you know what, maybe I could look at not just the building of literature itself within the novel, but also a particular building in the novel or this house? Is there some type of architectural and architectural dual lens that would allow me to examine the construction of identity um, in perhaps parallel, although distinct ways? And so the other works that I came across um, were, I guess, kind of, they came across the, or they, they came about much in the way that you were thinking of different works of literature. I thought back after I had, in a sense, realized that there was this interesting uh, combination of architecture and architecture in Condé's novel, what other works seemed to fit this mold, for lack of a better term? And I realized quite quickly that there were many options out there, but I tried to focus on novels where there is a particular house that is described abundantly and seems to have some evolving role. It wasn't static. That was important. It wasn't something someone could come back to over the years and which had not changed. The house itself, um, I talk about bioarchitecture because I believe that these constructions in literature are changing. They're, they're, they aren't static or uh, immobile in terms of their own depiction. I'm I'm so glad you brought up um you know Conde's protagonist on the veranda because one of the things that becomes quite evident right reading through your work is that being attentive to architecture in the way that you are leads us to consider you know interior and exterior spaces 
in this process of constructing literary identity. Um, and so aside from, I guess, Traversée de la Mangrove, where we're where quite literally writing from the space of the veranda that straddles this interior-exterior kind of boundary, how do these terms of inside and outside play out in some of the other works that you consider? Um, I guess I could... Uh... Uh, discuss um, Lily et Nuit uh, by uh, Daniel Maxima, which is the third novel of his Caribbean trilogy. Uh, the first, L'Isole Soleil, uh, with which I was quite familiar. And in L'Isole Soleil, there's a, there are two characters uh, who are discussing at one point how to incorporate ideas of others. And there's a miscommunication between the two. And at one point, Simia, I believe it's Simia in the novel, says, no, it's important. What I'm trying to say is that you should not uh, adopt these former ideas or these previously articulated concepts. You should adapt them. And I thought, wow, that is fascinating because that's kind of what I'm trying to demonstrate in this literature um, at large. And so when, uh, and actually I have to, one of the readers of uh, Liverpool University Press to thank, she suggested that I as a long list of, as we were discussing, uh, possibilities, she said you should really look at Lily and Me uh, by Maxima. And I hadn't, hadn't read that novel of the trilogy yet, and so I started reading it. And it's about a woman who uh, closes herself up in her home during what is essentially, but not named as such, uh, the passing of Hurricane Hugo in 1989. And it is her alone bearing the brunt of the storm around her. And what I realized quite quickly in reading the novel, in stark contrast to the first novel of uh, Maximin's trilogy, uh, L'Isole Soleil, it was almost devoid, so it appeared, of any type of intertextual elements, hypertextual elements. Um, there were very few outside references made at all in the context of the seven hours of this siege, uh, by the storm. And so I wondered, why is that? And it occurred to me quite quickly that there was this process by which you could see the storm, which came, of course, across the Atlantic, it's described as such, battering this house in Guadeloupe as allegorical for the imposition of, of uh, European colonial mindsets, uh, different types of structures. And so I thought, is there a connection between the lack, the apparent lack at least, of intertextual sources in this novel as opposed to previously in the two novels of the trilogy? And an attempt to articulate what it means to preserve oneself. Because after all, this is a story of survival. She has to remain alive during the storm's passing. And because she is the sole person on whom the narrative is focalized, if she were to die over the course of this storm, in a sense, we can assume that the narrative itself would end. And so there's this very type of there's this very tight affinity between her narrative personally and the narrative of her narrative. And so the more I started looking at it, I realized that there were what I argue are allusions to other works that aren't named explicitly, but in recognizing them, we can better understand that we can't remain entirely hermetically protected from the sources around us. We have to actually remain open and understand them as they pass through us, so to speak, in this house. 
And this is typified by the house in which she takes shelter. She could have easily have left it and taken shelter with friends, family, but she decides to be there because the house itself represents her, her past. Um, and she, there's this symbiosis that is articulated in the novel where she's there to help the house and the house is there to help her. And she cannot simply batter down the hatches and make the house hermetically sealed because that could actually make the house explode over the course of this hurricane's passing. And so there's a very careful, deliberate understanding of this acceptability of being, I guess, remaining accessible from outside sources. If she were to refuse them 100%, it's very clear in the novel that that is a a recipe for disaster. And there's this architectural typology that is quite early on explained over the course, uh, explained in the first part of the novel, where by way of letters from um, a friend that are given to her, previous storms are explained as they come across uh, the uh, Caribbean archipelago. And certain types of structures are immediately identified as safe structures. And one might think that it should be the, the rich villas which are very well built, et cetera, but it's made very clear that, in fact, those ones, because they are so well constructed, they are hermetically sealed and therefore much more prone to be destroyed in a hurricane event. Wow, this is really interesting. And so you have kind of this this house that becomes, you know, this that's symbolic of a larger kind of narrative, that's symbolic of a larger body of literature, and, and the idea of permeability as necessary for survival. Um, and I think that that's a thread that has actually been running through much of this conversation, because you, you talked a little bit earlier as well about this kind of dialogue between Condé and Chamoiseau, and that this permeability, this accessibility becomes a way of thinking about texts and writers as being, you know, continuously in conversation, almost as a, as a question of, of survival. What does it mean to create this, this literary identity for this region that has been under siege from, you know, colonial imposition? Um, and so thinking about permeable texts and thinking about conversations across not just works and spaces, but time. Um, I, I want to consider an earlier generation of writers um, like Suzanne Cézia and René Menil, who might also be in conversation. So for example, for these two writers, um, you know, they, they argue that Antillian literature cannot be that authentic expression of Antillian identity um, because there's just too much of, of an imitation of French literature. So, you know, Suzanne Cézia is particularly concerned about how the, the style of Antillian literature is, is really tethered to a sort of colonial French style. Um, and Menil argues that even when Antillian literature tries to pull away, because it is responding to that initial French style and French idea of literary production, it becomes overdetermined. And so even in that act of pulling away, that original, if you will, kind of, you know, still shapes what the response looks like. And so, you know, for both of these writers, then folklore is where they turn as that possibility for authentic expression. So, you know, write off Antillian literature to some extent and folklore is where this authenticity can be located. How do you think that your authors would respond to this view of folklore kind of in opposition to literature? That's a very good question. Um, I know in terms of folklore, 
these are you know supposedly stories that were passed on um, over the generations and that preexisted to some extent at least the colonial era. They do hark back to a certain type of authenticity that is not the authenticity that I'm uh, discussing in my novel. That I think that it's, it's hard to get to that um, exclusively, and I think that you know narratives evolve over time, regardless of when they began. Um, that being said. I discussed uh, Bernard Béchamoison et Confiant in L'Age de la Créolité, and at that point in 1989, they too are saying that at this point, Caribbean, French Caribbean literature does not exist. Um, we are still steeped in values that are not our own. We are steeped in traditions, um, uh, literary traditions, uh, styles, genres that are not our own. And I think that with respect to the works that I examine, it becomes more and more clear, and I think this is articulated very, very well by Condé in her response to Chamoiseau's uh, public reading of her text, that if we are to refuse certain influences simply because we recognize them as, quote-unquote, not our own, then by definition, we are limiting ourselves in our expression and so as a result, we have to not necessarily accept, and this comes back to the idea of face value as such, certain traditions, um, certain um, times of history, but we should, in fact, in articulating them and incorporating them in our own narratives, be very clear that they are seen as being different in our discourse. They're treated differently. And uh, I think... Um, I just forgot. Uh, I was going to give an example of that. Oh, uh, uh, I believe it's Confiant. It's interesting how different authors over the course of the last 60, 70 years in the Caribbean have attempted different ways of arriving at the time at what they called an authentic discourse. And I think that idea has changed remarkably. And I could not have written a book arguing for that type of authenticity. However, um, there are examples, maybe it was Chamoiseau, where uh, they would listen to the radio and listen to the obituaries on the radio. And from those obituaries, draw the names of individuals because those names themselves were, quote unquote, authentic names that were not part of the colonial project. I find that interesting that it's looking for minute pieces with which to construct an authentic discourse. And I think, and I think Kone is one of the leaders in demonstrating this to proceed as such or uniquely as such is impossible. You will have too meager pieces or too few tools with which to create uh, what I would call an authentic discourse because there simply isn't that much left uh, with which to construct. And so by definition, these authors cannot ignore what happened over the course of colonization. And if they speak differently, if they have different vocabulary words, if they are familiar with different um, types of discourses, those become therefore part of their means of expression. Mm. So we've been talking quite a bit about authors from Martinique and Guadeloupe, um, but you also write about Haiti um, in, in this book. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your experience writing across Martinique, Guadeloupe, and Haiti 
um, given their connections, but also some very stark kind of divergent moments in their histories. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at least in terms of my book, one of the connections would be with respect to questioning and negotiating issues of autonomy. And this of course is directly related to identity. And what I mean by that is two of the novels that I look at from Martinique and Guadeloupe are focused on the early to mid 1940s and the era where the former French colonies in, on the heels of World War II become departments. So it's the um, departementalization of the former French colonies. And there, there is a, a very deep questioning of what do we become now? Um, do we become entirely independent, autonomous? Do we define ourselves differently? Or is there this departementalization where we, I guess, grant ourselves or are granted some type of autonomy and yet within a larger French-centric uh, political, social, governmental uh, entity? And the parallel to be made, I think, with Haiti, which, uh, which of course earned their independence uh, much earlier in 1804, comes about in a type of retrospective way when the earthquake hits Haiti, because once again, yet again, there's this international presence attempting to say what should be done to allow the, the country to quote unquote, get back on its feet and become uh, self-sufficient. And I think that's where, even though the trajectories that you suggested are very different um, quite early on in history of the colonization or the, um, uh, yeah, the colonial empire in the Caribbean, there are these parallels whereby there are moments where I guess the the desire or the determination with which the country must be defined or is looking to be defined by itself as opposed to an outside entity come to the forefront. And I think with regards to the two texts that I examine in my book, uh, with Yannick Lance's uh, Fay and Guillaume Nathalie, there really is this attempt not just to rewrite history in terms of the story of the characters, the fictional characters that she was working on when the earthquake hit, but there is this questioning and this pushback on the attempt that others have made to either reinscribe or continually inscribe Haiti in this discourse of disaster or to attempt to forge a new identity uh, without, and there's this obviously the big debate on reconstructing Haiti. What is reconstruction? Does that mean starting over? Um, there are collections of books uh, of essays written on this topic suggesting if we are to start over um, in Haiti, where would Haitians start at the revolution, prior to the revolution, um, after the American occupation, after the earthquake? It's interesting to to look at where different scholars um, and writers feel it is important to quote unquote begin again, or with what 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 is allowed to continue on um, in the absence of certain things that are determined to be inherently uh, deconstructive to one's ideals. Right. So the, the the 2010, you know, earthquake that that devastated Haiti, um, it's, it does open up a lot of questions, um, right? And, and I think it's really interesting that you identify that as as this point of connection um, 
with Guadeloupe and Martinique also in that sort of, you know, moment of questioning and, and self-definition or, or construction, um, you know, at the point of departmentalization. Um, but it's also an interesting or an important moment to bring up in our conversation today, um, you know, because today, well, we're, we're exactly a week ago today marks the eighth anniversary of this earthquake. Um, and I think that in public discourse here in the U.S., the commemoration of this moment was overshadowed by a rather heated debate um, in response to Donald Trump's recent comments kind of denigrating immigrants from Haiti and the African continent. And what I'm really interested in are the responses to the comment. And so, you know, the responses have ranged from exposés about Haiti's historical aid to the U.S. in the period of revolution, which is a key period that you you mentioned in your response, um, you know, to other responses that provide a list of achievements of individuals from Haiti whose, you know, statesmanship, work ethic, cultural contributions have had an impact, uh, whether local or international. Um, so I'm not asking you to necessarily wade into the very fraught waters of this debate. Um, but what I'm asking is that given your expertise, your close reading, you know, and, and your in-depth study of how Haitian writers like Yannick Laos, like Evelyn Trouillot, construct Haitian literary identity in their works, what light can your work shed on sort of the more expansive terms on which we may respond to the unsavory comments, right? Beyond this list of responses that I've given, which I think are sometimes limiting in terms of, you know, responding as yes, we are, or no, we are not what you say we are. How do these writers and, and your, your analysis of their work shed light on how we may open up the terms on which we can have a conversation about the ongoing construction of a place like Haiti? That's an excellent question, um, as well, Annette. <laughs> um, I think that it's important to to see literature as a means of grappling with these issues. And with respect to the earthquake, it was interesting, uh, Martin Monroe has documented this uh, very articulately in one of his books, the different types of responses that came after the earthquake by Haitians from Haiti and the diaspora. And first it was op-ed pieces, and then uh, it was longer articles, and then it was uh, shorter pieces, whether it be poetry, uh, short stories. And now we're seeing um, uh, novels um, about this era. They're continually um, produced and um, published today. And so there is a response to these, these times where identity is not necessarily questioned first and foremost in Haiti, but projected on Haiti by others. And I think that the writers with whom I'm familiar won't necessarily respond word for word to what has been said, um, to how Haitians and African countries have been denigrated um, by the president, but rather they will renew the ways in which they describe their country, which may not change, but will continually show an optimistic struggle to become something that perhaps they aren't right now. And they wouldn't obviously refer to their country in the same way, but literature is 
a forum for struggle. It's a forum for attempting to articulate new ways, new visions of, uh, of being, of, of, of expressing oneself. And, uh, um, I was fortunate to have Evan Toyo come to campus several years ago. And over the course of the semester, my students had read quite a few novels by her. And, and so when she came to campus, we not only discussed those novels, but there was an open session where students could ask any question they wanted. And Evelyn, of course, was very uh, welcoming. And one of my students, um, and I'm glad that the student asked the question, it was a very sincere question, asked, how can you write such sad literature? How can you keep writing about such such difficult things? And Evelyn Twill's response was incredible. She kind of looked at the student and said, I don't see it as sad. When you write about struggle, that's automatically optimistic. And I think that type of response to by, by writers is, I optimistically myself say inevitable. There will, as soon as there are people writing about these issues, it will require, or at least it will strongly encourage people to see both sides of the issue and to see what people are doing, whether they be Haitian immigrants here doing amazing things or people in Haiti um, doing amazing things. They will see this country and its people differently. And so I think that literature is ultimately something that will, over time, it's not something that can be created overnight, but it will find its own way to respond to these types of remarks. Literature as struggle, renewal, and new ways of being. I, I find that so incredibly powerful because these are comments that I've, I've struggled with as well. And to, to, to think about optimism um, as something that underlies, you know, Haitian writers' renewal of the ways that they describe the country, the space, the people, I think is something that is particularly powerful. I've been talking with Jason Herbeck about his book, Architectural Authenticity, Constructing Literature and Literary Identity in the French Caribbean. Jason, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much, Annette. It was a pleasure.